I'm Jess. And I'm Jen. We're just two run-of-the-mill casting directors looking to have a little fun while tearing down the curtain on casting, the process, and how the sausage gets made. So many misconceptions have come from outside sources, so we're here to clear the air and make sure everyone gets a full picture of all that goes into casting your favorite TV shows and films. All the while, we'll be drinking some amazing cocktails and spilling the tea on some of the most outrageous stories we've come across in our careers. Maybe we'll even bring on a few exciting guests along the way. Cheers! Cheers. Before we jump into the episode, I need to address the atrocities that have happened and continue to happen in Israel starting 6.30 a.m. on Saturday, October 7th. As someone who is the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors and has family in Israel myself, these last few days have been incredibly painful to watch. The slaughter of my people once again. Regardless of how you feel about the Israeli government, there is no but when it comes to contextualizing what has happened. Hamas is a terrorist organization, and they are openly massacring the Israeli people and parading them around the streets. It is horrific and inhumane. When something like this happens in Israel, Jewish people around the world, myself included, begin to fear for their lives. The propaganda machine begins to work to make Israelis look like the villains, and there begins a massive uprise in anti-Semitic attacks everywhere. We saw it a couple years ago, and it will happen once again. So take this time to check on your Jewish friends, because they are incredibly scared of what's to come. Our hearts and prayers are with the people of Israel. Jen and I stand with Israel. We will be posting some resources, places you can donate if you want to make a financial donation to support the Israeli people. Thank you so much for listening and your continued support. Good afternoon. Good evening. Thank you for joining us for what is going to be another fun episode of Tipsy Casting. I'm Jess, and this is my co-host, Jen. Thank you all for joining us again this week. We are excited to welcome the amazing director, Corin Hardy, to Tipsy Casting. From a young age, Corin developed a dark and distinctive flair for creating monsters, animations, and Super 8 horror films. He studied theater design at Wimbledon School of Art before spending five years making his award-winning stop-motion film, Butterfly. With a keen interest in music, he directed cinematic promos for many artists, including The Prodigy, Biffy Clyro, Keen, The Horrors, Paolo Nutini, and Ed Sheeran. In 2011, Screen International selected Hardy as one of their stars of tomorrow. In 2015, Corin's debut featured The Hollow, launched at Sundance to international acclaim, taking home numerous awards, including Best Horror Film in Empire Film Awards, Best Feature at Fantastic Fest, Strasbourg, and taking home five awards at the LA Scream Fest, including Best Director. He was nominated as Best Debut Director at BIFA. In 2018, Corin directed his second feature, The Nun. The Nun went on to become the highest grossing film of the Conjuring franchise and is the ninth highest grossing horror movie of all time. Most recently, he became lead director, co-showrunner, and executive producer of season two of Sky and AMC Plus's action crime saga, Gangs of London. He directed half of the episodes in season one, which became Sky's most binge-watched show of 2020. 
Since we're a podcast all about the casting, after we recorded with Corin, he asked us to include a shout out to Rich D'Elia, Lillian Toma, and Rose Wicksteed, who cast The Nun, and Dixie Chasse, who cast The Hallow for him. He's truly a delight, and we love chatting in depth with him about his career and journey and how pivotal a role casting played in his films. Now grab a cocktail. Or a mocktail. And enjoy. Corin, thanks so much for joining us today. We're so excited that you could fit us in. We know you're very, very busy prepping your next movie. So, and you're back and forth between two continents and all that craziness. So thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm glad to finally get to talk and do your podcast. Exciting. Thank you. Okay. Well, first of all, we start off, we know it's quite early here in the UK because I'm, you and I are in the same, same time zone, but we always start with what we're drinking because we usually try to incorporate some alcoholic twist to it so what are you drinking this morning <laughs> I, I am i've got some booze just to sort of represent that it's the tipsy podcast i'm actually not drinking in the week a heavy weekend and i'm drinking a cup of earl grey tea in a cup from oh, I mexico it. i love I'm it like, just what do you got just you're the appropriate drinker today in the middle of the night kind of <laughs> Yes. I'm not sure if this is considered day drinking at this point since it's 2 a.m., but uh, I, I, my body's very confused because I went to bed at 11 and had a one-hour nap and then woke up. So I don't know what's really going on right now, but um, I, I made myself a hot toddy with some sweet and spicy good earth tea and some honey and some Jameson and... You know, that's how I'm going to wrap up my night. <laughs> well, that sounds like a healthy, healthy uh, concoction. Yes, yeah. I, I'm being a little bit good, a little bit bad. I spiked my coffee with Bailey's, so I just have coffee to help me wake up. Slash, a little bit of Bailey's in there to make it dipsy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a proper uh, method podcast we got here. Yes, you, you go for the name to podcast. You're living out the dreams. We try. Oh, yes. <laughs> we try. We are all in. One of us is always usually inappropriately drinking, so we try to at least even it out on our sides. <laughs> if we had managed to schedule it at a, an evening time, I know we were trying to, I would have probably had a uh, a nice whiskey or a, a good gin and tonic, and uh, I would have used the botanist gin, which I think is one of the, the, the best gins to, to drink. Oh, good to know. I'm I'm in my experimental gin phase, so I'm going to look out for that one. Yeah, that sounds really good. In fact, it was given to me by the actor Damien Bashir, who was uh, in The Nun. And uh, as, as his present to me, he gave me a bottle of The Botanist. It was the uh, it was the best gin I've ever had. So I stick with that one. Oh, I love it. We kind of like to dive in with um, kind of just how you got into this industry. Like, how did you always know you wanted to be in it? Like, what kind of drew you to, to TV and film? I wanted to be a monster maker when I was a kid. So uh, when I was about 12, I made some of these um, wow. zombies and you know, wanted to make monsters in the movies. So I, I kind of, from a young age, studied sculpture and, and watched horror movies and um, 
that's what sort of got me somehow uh, fascinated by creating something like another world that could uh, exist on film. After Yeah, I guess after seeing King Kong when I was very little and then watching Ray Harryhausen monster movies and then horror movies around the age of 12, piqued my sort of fascination with it. And um, initially it was, it, it inspired me and my group of friends to get together when we were sort of between the ages of 12 and maybe 18 to kind of try and make our own movies, horror movies, monsters, lots of gore and prosthetics and and it was a real kind of exciting feeling because it felt like we were pulling off magic tricks or something that you know you could show to someone and they would it would cause a reaction so that early kind of time experimenting making movies led to me eventually after going to sort of art school doing theatre design at Wimbledon School of Art where I specialised in a course called Technical Arts Interpretation which was sort of theatre design special effects for the stage and screen sculpture and design and I made some short films and then when I uh, finished my degree I made a stop-motion animation and it took five years to make and it was literally me on my own for five years making film that was half an hour long and it uh, and I got as many people who I knew were skilled in different ways to help from students to help build sets to local craftsmen and I and I sort of wrote it shot it lit it animated it um, edited it and it was all done without any uh, computer uh, you know CGI it was all sort of old-fashioned stop-motion it's a film called Butterfly you can see it if you it's on iTunes actually but someone else uploaded it to YouTube and it's been on YouTube since so it's Corin Hardy's Butterfly stop motion animation so that's that's what got me started it, it took five years I got it in Edinburgh Film Festival and it was my kind of attempt to put something on the screen that you know could represent what I kind of wanted to do making feature films and uh, it got screened at the Edinburgh Film Festival and then I, I think I got the attention of a, a band manager who managed the band Keen I don't know if you come across them over there Keen uh, had that song Somewhere Only We Know and Bed Shapes um, and I did my first music videos and uh, started directing music videos and then spent 10 years directing about 50 or 60 music videos, which was a kind of really my film school because I didn't go to film school. So it was a chance to like experiment with storytelling and, and working with crews and sort of professionally trying out my craft and whilst I was doing that I was also working on feature films scripts and, and and ideas and collaborating with other people and writers put together my projects and that eventually led after eight years of uh, sort of working it out writing rewriting pitching meeting producers to to making my first film The Hallow which was in about 2014 that was a horror movie based around fairy folk mythology wow that's amazing so did in your music video career did you get to use like your monster scary or was it more (laughs) pop type videos no it's a good question I I did get to use all of that because I sort of I guess through natural you know the way that you kind of gravitate towards certain ideas bands music and the way you attract certain types of imagery and music I tended to do if I got a big band you know, a, a more popular band's music video, I tended to do like the second or third release. Mm. So it wasn't like the most important one. They spend like most of their budget and their money goes on that first video, or it used to uh, when they had budgets. <laughs> Um, And then, you know, so I'd do like the third or fourth release. So it'd be a sort of lower budget and I'd get much more control and they would want like the strange, weird video (laughs) and I'd get to do the strange, weird 
videos. So, or I do a, a lesser known band and get their first, you know, their their, their biggest budget, which um, and 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 you know, still be able to do something strange and weird. So, I, I did videos for Keen, for the Prodigy, Paolo Nutini, Biffy mm-hmm. Clyro, McLy, Ollie Murs, The Horrors. Wow. So do you still do them or do you, did, was that just kind of like a stepping stone into the feature world? I, I mean, technically I still do them. I have a, I'm represented by Academy Films in, in England and uh, and in America. And uh, I, I'm, I do them. I just haven't had really time to do them since yeah. <laughs> kind of the hallow in a way so I, I think I have done once but uh no I, I, and I'd love to uh so it's really just finding the time because I I do enjoy the I the process of of making a music video which is very quick really you know after lots of time spent in features and and tv but I found it really creative and I I basically always tried to work in a story a narrative actors or special effects and stop motion and and treat each of them as a sort of chance to do a mini feature film in three and a half, three minutes or so with whatever the money they had. So if you look at any of the, the ones I've done, they tend not to be a sort of glossy performance video mm. of, of the pop star singing in lip sync. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're more... They were just like, what can I do to sort of further my experience and create kind of visions that, uh, you know, tell stories in the time of the, of the inspired by the song, though, always. I did do, the last one I did actually was for Ed Sheeran and Devlin, and it was a kind of crime story. And the idea was to tell like the last five minutes of a feature film that you hadn't seen and create gripping tension and actually kill, I killed Ed Sheeran in in the video only. (laughs) Um, um, did you get death threats from his fans afterwards <laughs> he was really good really good sport but that was for a, a song called watchtower cover of all along the watchtower with ed sheeran and devlin and there's a director's cut kind of seven minute version of that as well somewhere which was actually kind of similar to, to what we did with gangs of london in the, in a way yeah so how did that happen because you did you were into feature films and everything when i met you and you know you did the nun and things like mm. that that were all amazing films how did you get involved in gangs of london because it's one of my favorite shows i've been watching since the mm-hmm. beginning because it's two of my favorite actors in it you can tell there's like a shift in season two where i feel like you were like this is my show now because it's very <laughs> very intense <laughs> so how did that all come about well i had gone from the, the hallow and then i for uh, a few years i was working on making a remake of The Crow, which was a sort of balance of crime, action, you know, horror. Um, I then made The Nun with New Line and Warner Brothers, which was a kind of first studio movie. And then I was going back to do another version of The Crow because uh, with, with Jason Mamar. And when that didn't happen, Gareth Evans, who had, who's a, you know, a brilliant action director, friend of mine, he'd been in touch because he was putting the show Gangs of London together with Pulse and, and Sister um, over here for Sky. And uh, he was sort of adapting a, or loosely adapting a video game titled Gangs of London into a multi-episodic TV show. He had asked me about directing an episode and I wasn't available at the time but I was I was intrigued I'd always sort of wanted to do television at at the right time I didn't know what my television show would be I I had a number of ideas and I was always a bit wary certainly in the older the olden (laughs) times when you know when it was TV was more like TV and then gradually when it became streaming uh things got more cinematic and interesting and uh so I sort of was putting together my own stuff and then when I 
became available gareth had asked me again and i and i sort of said okay you know i thought i was going to do maybe an episode or maybe two and it became uh in the end i got so sort of entrenched in it i, I did four episodes of that first season and then got asked back to take on the second season co-show running it with tom butterworth and um lead directing it it was very much a real kind of jumping out of my comfort zone to, to begin with, because I could, you know, it was a, a, a genre that I was less familiar with, although I'm a big fan of, of sort of crime and action cinema from sort of, you know, blockbusters to Asian martial arts films and Korean revenge thrillers and, uh, you know, a lot of 1970s crime films. And so it was it was a chance to work with Gareth and create because because I also knew his style is so particular. He's he's a big genre fan, as am I, and um, comes from, you know, a lot of martial arts movies like The Raid and The Raid 2. We, we had to figure out how to sort of blend, you know, a, a complex family crime saga story with these relentless, outrageous action sequences that sort of define the show without it feeling like you're sort of jumping into a, 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 a different genre or, you know, the tone changing. So I, I, I was so sort of intent on, you know, making that work and myself sort of, I guess, working with a much larger cast than we'd ever had. Although, you know, The Nun was a relatively large movie that the key cast was only sort of three of them, really. Same with The Hallows. So Gangs of London has about 20 kind of main characters yeah. and then the rest. And there was a you know a lot of dialogue and a lot to work with. So I, I really enjoyed it. And it was particularly what I got most out of it was working with the actors and working like really um, under the skin of those characters and getting performances out of the out of them and, and taking that through into a second season. Second season, my intention was definitely to continue what we'd built off and uh, just make sure it was maybe because I was conscious of not wanting to let the fans down at that point that in terms of what we had established with that tone and action and everything, um, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't a plan to go more intense <laughs> or darker. But, uh, may I think it did. <laughs> It was, to me, it seemed like one, I think it you could tell definitely a shift where everything about season one definitely ran through. I mean, it was such a great show in general to start with, but it did, it, I feel like it upped the ante. It's almost like, like we had Sam Hargrave on a couple couple episodes ago and oh, yeah. just, just made the comment, like you keep coming up with new ways to make people die in the <laughs> extraction movies. And yeah. I almost feel like Gangs of London did that where it's like, okay, we've already done these things. Now we're going to like add in this new level. Cause again, you know, I, I'm a huge mm -hmm. Joe Cole fan and the fact that you killed him off and right. then brought him back. I was like, how did this even happen? <laughs> well, uh, inventing new ways for people to die is a, is a good one way of uh, explaining the part of the DNA of the show and the attraction of it. Um, <laughs> And, and, and I think the key thing is is new because, you know, what we're trying to do is not repeat things and, and you know, make sure that we're able to take you on a ride. Because I think, I mean, you know, whatever the genre and whatever the film or TV show, I want to make sure that you're becoming as immersed as possible in the story and in the characters. And in Gangs of London, a show like that, it's all about, you know, really following these characters. And, and even though they're all criminals in that show, mm -hmm. they're all humans and you can kind of relate to them with the, their family predicaments that they get in in different ways so you know some of the, some of the characters for instance like Luan played by Orly Shuka um, really sort of ended up standing out because he's a sort of family man and even though he's done terrible terrible things he's also just a family man with his two children and his wife and he wants to protect them <laughs> and yeah. so there's there's sort of I think relatable aspects and then and then the kind of predicaments they get in that threaten their lives that take you on this kind of ride is the part which cinematically also we're really trying to keep 
fresh and uh, you know nail biting. Well, you've clearly uh, done a great job with that. I do have a question. Just you said that you you know your goal is to make sure that the audience is immersed in the in the show and completely engaged. When you're going through the casting process mm. for the second season, what are the mm. important things for you as you go through that journey? Now in the second season, being sort of the co-showrunner through the process, like what are you yeah. what are you looking for through casting? I mean, with with the first season, I came on board to direct the second, third, fourth episodes. Gareth had already sort of begun the casting and got the key roles in place, including Joe Cole and Chopin, Dirisu, and and the sort of key the key roles there. And I came in to sort of help cast the ongoing roles that, that ended up also becoming leads in season two. I mean, one of the most important aspects of Gangs of London is creating what feels like an authentic real world that's grounded, reflects contemporary London. And although we sort of will cinematically heighten it and take you almost behind the facades of London and you know take you away from the tourist attractions and take you into these slightly fantastical realms underneath the high street shops or or above in in the sort of towers where we find these different criminals we had done a hell of a lot of research but everything sort of comes based on certain realities mm. and a lot of that comes from diversity in in the different gangs and, and so we sort of we would select different ethnicities based on the kinds of gangs and then try and cast as accurately as possible whenever possible which was a really exciting part of the show because we got to bring actors from abroad from overseas actors like Asif Razamir um, Nargis Rashidi and Arta Debrashi and then in season two Walid Zoeta mm, and Fadi El Sayed mm. Armando. so that aspect kind of kept it feeling really fresh and real and then of course each sort of gang boss that you had you then also had to cast their gang which usually had a, a couple of right hand men or women and and then a whole kind of gang's worth <laughs> so you know trying to find authentic Iranians and Albanians and Algerians uh, Georgians <laughs> Pakistani. Wow. It was a you know a real brilliant effort from uh, the casting side of things, which was on Gangs of London, Kelly Valentine, Hendry, and, and her team. Yeah. And so it, it kind of added that extra layer and extra challenge as well, because and you can't always you know because you're looking for the best actors possible to play those roles. It is something where I don't I don't envy Kelly in that sense where it's like you really do have to build out these worlds, and she's done such a phenomenal job. Like yeah. kudos to her because yeah, it is. Very very authentic feeling and everything and to also find people who are physical enough to endure all the stunts and the fighting and the killing and right. <laughs> is pretty impressive so yeah. shout out to her that's very impressive yeah um kelly's been incredible and that part of it was also again it's sort of part of the special source of gangs of london was you know okay let's let's cast the best actors let's go as much as we can for sort of authentic ethnicities but let's get also actors who are excited about doing action and stunts originating from gareth evans casting of particularly chopin dirisu who's um you know an incredible actor and presence and a lovely man and uh, but also incredible physical performer uh he, he had to train up you know, 14 weeks ahead of the show to perform all of his own action sequences. And, and, you know, these are like incredibly complex, detailed fight choreographies. Same with season two, you know, we, in fact, season two, we wanted to sort of bring in, I think more actors got excited from season one about like, why well, they want to have their own uh, sequences. <laughs> 
<laughs> Nargis Rashidi as well, incredible actress and was really keen on doing her own stunts. She had some action in the first season, but uh, we built in a kind of complete, uh, for anyone that's seen sort of episode six of season two, you know, she has an entire kind of action episode. Um, Joe Cole as well, you know, his, his background is with movies like Prayer Before Dawn and, you know, the kind of films he's done. We wanted to find more for him to do in season two. So there's a kind of intense standoff that happens in that. And then... Uh, also, I thought it'd be interesting to see an actress like Michelle Fairley, who's also just, again, phenomenal powerhouse yeah. performance, and and kind of, you know, see a an action sequence with a lady of, of her kind sort of getting set upon by the villains in a helicopter and her having to sort of survive. Lucian M's Matty as well. <laughs> I, they're all just top of their game in Gangs of London. Do they ever get a script and they just call you and they're like, Corin, come on now, what is this? <laughs> You know, do they ever just think you've blown it too far or anything? <laughs> Are they all pretty down? Honestly, no. The opposite of anything. It would generally be like, you know, oh, you know, can we do more? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone ever complained about having too much action to do or, or, yeah. or intensity because it's actually, I mean, it was all very handled incredibly sort of seriously. Like I said, we would we would have our action designers working alongside from right at the beginning. Jude Poyer on season one did a phenomenal job with Gareth putting together those sequences. And then mm -hmm. Tim Connolly on season two. They're very much storytellers as well. So they're working on the action as part of the story and conscious of building sequences that the actors can perform themselves obviously there's lots of stunt performers doing incredible work and doubling sometimes so does that mean season three are you going to be involved again or what is that because i heard they got picked up for season three correct yeah i was very pleased season two allowed a season three to happen i am not involved because i'm working on a feature film so uh, they are i think shooting, shooting season three pretty soon yeah i can't i can't release any of the secrets about it <laughs> oh come on <laughs> <laughs> oh man is there a bit of FOMO there at all of like oh I, you were part of so much of it that now it's no I'm very, I'm 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 excited to watch it as a as a fan and, s and see what they do and uh, I'm I'm as sort of excited about it and protective of those actors and you know it was hard directing a season where you're going to have to kill off some of your favorite characters and cast members uh, and you have to sort of go yeah. through that emotional and you almost have a certain grieving process because particularly with someone like Walid Zoeta, he played the sort of villain of season two as Cobra. He he was such a charismatic performance and a lovable character actually somehow yeah. as a human being. So Yeah, him and then I will say when you killed off Papa, I about lost it. I was like, what? So early too in the season. I was really shocked by that. And we should have said at the beginning that there's gonna be a lot of spoilers because we've already released a load in case <laughs> oh, yeah. maybe you can announce a Try a spoiler warning at the beginning. Yeah, if you haven't watched season two, we'll, we'll make a little announcement at the beginning for anybody who hasn't seen it. But I feel like it's been out there long yes. enough now that people should have watched it if you're going to watch it. It has been, but there's still plenty of people, particularly in the States, who are just coming across it. It got really well released and, and promoted over here. And um, I think most of the UK has probably seen it by now. But but certainly in America, I still get people who are get, getting recommended it and, and discovering it. Yeah, we're still catching up over here. <laughs> Present yeah. company included. <laughs> uh, AMC plus in the States for anyone who wants to watch it. And yeah, Papa do um super super sad um to 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 see him go. But the show is it's we tried to keep to this art uh, sort of ethos of making the most dangerous show on television, yeah. which is a sort of bold statement. 
And, uh, but if anything felt too normal, too TV, too safe, we had to go in a different direction. And, and that isn't just about killing off characters you love, but it but it did involve that. Yeah. Well, and I think it almost has that Game of Thrones aspect of like, you're not afraid to kill off your mains. Mm. Like, so it keeps the audience on its seat at yeah. the time because you really don't know who's going to die. You can love them and think just like with, sorry, Jess, spoiler alert, with Papa's character, you think he's going to be the one taking over and then bam, he's gone. You're like, oh my God, wait, now yeah. what's happening? And it's really phenomenal what you've done in another world he he would have been the one taking over but <laughs> that's where casting and actor schedules and other shows and actors profiles on the rise where you end up being challenged with instead of you've got him for seven months you've got him for seven weeks and you have to yeah. figure that out into the storylines as well interesting interesting so now you're moving on to can you tell us anything about your next feature that you're currently working on um i'm right now in of prep so I'm actually right in the thick of casting and it's a new horror movie and it's been um, put together in as a Canadian Irish co-production out in amazing. in Toronto which I'm really excited about got a, an amazing crew and it's coming together really well I'm not going to say too much about it because we're just in uh, early phases so I can't really tell you who's in it but it's very I'm really excited with the yeah. cast that's coming together be cast by um, Sarah Kay out in Canada and Louis Keely in Ireland and the EU. Oh, we love uh, Luis. Yeah. She's a lovely human. Both of them just uh, doing really phenomenal work, uh, getting uh, an exciting young cast together. That's really exciting. I know you you haven't had, uh, outside of uh, Gangs of London, you haven't had too many TV experiences, but just in the sort of process of your feature prep mm -hmm. and sort of the execution of it, how has your sort of the way that you've worked changed with the sort of changing times of whether it's streaming or your process, has that changed as time passed in any way? I would say I'm constantly learning and gaining knowledge and improving. In a way, the way I approach any project is exactly the same, whether it's television or film, and that's to make something as immersive, cinematic, um, and emotional as possible, whatever the genre, and to prep in so much detail always. So Gangs of London, as an example, we, we were approaching that like we were making 10 feature films that were connected, but that all had to sort of stand out and same with season two and it was a quite a strange television production setup because it was being put together by a company that had only done feature films and the three directors me gareth and zavi on season one were also feature film directors who hadn't done television so it, it was kind of slightly different anyway you know it was, it was very ambitious and so i don't know I, I i in terms of me and my creative process it remains the same whatever it is except that i just get more and more knowledgeable but the world out there has definitely changed a lot mm -hmm. in terms of the the industry since when I did the Hallow 2014 I think you know the streaming side of things obviously has blown up hugely and then blown up <laughs> who knows what's happening now <laughs> You know, and, and I think television has become inc increasingly more ambitious and cinematic, you know, with, with the kind of shows we're watching, whether it's Succession or um, Stranger Things or I've just been watching Euphoria and just blown away by the, the scope of that show and how it feels like, you know, really we're watching in, in indie cinema, you know, in that show to the highest level. Like Breaking Bad was definitely a kind of big bridge to, to gangs of London and, and shows like The Sopranos in that, again, that sort of, it's television, but it's it's 
on a different level and the, and the character development and the character stories, the performances, the quality of the shows, the feeling that you're watching cinema and cinematic episodes um, was all really inspiring. Yeah. I'm curious if you've had to like deal with any of this on your film side, because Justin and I both work a lot in the indie space and it's a lot harder to get indies made these days. Have you found that at all of like getting things off the ground and moving where before it, the indie space almost felt like you could discover a lot of talent, you could kind of put new ideas, new thoughts, new exciting scripts out there. And now it's really based on whether you have somebody name me attached or in terms of like mm. the content, if it's something splashy or new, or do you struggle with that at all? Or do you mostly go through studios? How do, how does that work on your end of things? I have, yeah, I, I totally uh, hear what you you're saying I've sort of I guess working straddling both all the time and have a number of projects with studios and a number of indie projects and tv projects and I think it's sort of each to their own and everything's got slightly different demands and and I kind of adapt accordingly or if it's a sort of lower budgeted indie and you need to try and attract a certain name which is always a bit of a dark art because you have a sort of mysterious list of uh it, changing actors that sort of have value um um, yeah. not, that's not my quote, by the way. Yeah. I hate that word. Because <laughs> oh, we understand, we understand. <laughs> but it is—it's a sort of whispered list always, and and uh, I'm always intrigued of how they get there. Obviously, sometimes you can see when an actor's having a moment, and you know everyone wants Ryan Gosling to lead their movie, <laughs> but uh, you know there's certain lists of, of names that you kind of are encouraged to, to try and get for certain levels of budget which I understand but uh sometimes you can attract them and other times you can't and there's hundreds of other brilliant actors out there so yeah different processes for different types of uh yeah. production I think yeah I guess we're kind of bumping into this situation where like things are really kind of pushing against casting especially because we are like constantly in need of these names to get our things made where you know I've had a couple films that have been I call my COVID babies that started like right before COVID and again financial pressures on the investors or the producers or director uh requires them to get a certain level name but then eventually the movie just won't get made because you can't there's only so many people that equal x amount of millions yeah. of dollars and if you don't get somebody to try to convince financiers yeah. or studios or people that certain people mm -hmm. are trying to so sometimes you lose some of those really cool creative new idea scripts or anything like that so i didn't know if you had encountered that at all but it sounds like maybe you just kind of roll with the punches when it comes to that you you do and you just have to kind of keep working and adapting and i i, I guess you know it, it depends again a lot with the budget if you're if you're in a in a higher budget area you know, I haven't been, uh, I haven't encountered having to make a movie with such a high budget that I, it literally is kind of one of the mega stars. I've had, I've had a situation where there's a film with a sort of around, like, let's say a 60 million budget and there is a list and, and the list of um, actors that you can make the film with for that amount of money is relatively short. And, you know, like you're maybe looking at 10 to 15 names and if you can't get them, then you have to, you can still make the film, but you maybe have to adjust the budget level down, which means adjusting the overall vision and everything you're going for maybe you, you do the film that you were going to hope to do for 60 for 30 and then you get a different list it might even be a more interesting list probably is a more exciting list of of another sort of 10 to 15 and then you can kind of work your way through 
those. I think there's a there's a lot of I think you guys obviously know that side of things of what's sort of behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. I think it's an area which a lot of public probably just don't really think about. And in, in, you assume that you go to make a movie, you think of your dream cast, and you you get to have that person. But I tend to sort of have people in mind, imagine them, particularly help if I'm writing roles or a script. You know, to have a ballpark of of actors in mind or, or people that I know and work with that I want to work with again. Sometimes and a lot of time you just never get those people for different reasons. You you might not get them because they're too busy in, in terms of the bigger names, but also sometimes you want your uh, tried and trusted actors and, and you're not allowed to have them because they need a bigger name. And so it's a, there's always a sort of version I have of, of the project that I'm going into with the sort of dream cast, but it's something, I guess it, frequently you you end up with a very different cast and then it turns into be turns out to be you know the best cast you could have imagined because it's the journey of getting there through the casting process and having other people do do great work as, uh, from the casting side suggesting finding you know auditioning it all sort of ends up solidifying and presenting itself throughout that process almost like just like any other process when you involve people who are good at their job you know i had uh i think the thing that Gangs of London does so beautifully is that the cast, they sort of meld into that era, right? So they are recognizable enough that you, like you've seen them in so many other things, but at the same time, you you can focus on the story. You're immersed in the story. And I think that for me, that was something I had the incredible journey to start my career in casting, working on a bunch of J.J. Abrams projects. And mm. for me, that was such an education because especially sort of when the first few things that he was taking on on his own, like Super 8 and, you know, sort of rebranding these different franchises, his way of casting was always, I don't want famous faces to distract you from the story I'm telling. And I, like, on the casting side, I think that is such a beautiful opportunity to discover so many incredible talents that, you know, I really wish that you didn't have, not even for the fact that it's so challenging to get marquee names to be part of these films to get financing I think it's just such a missed opportunity to immerse yourself in storytelling because you have to find these marquee names you know uh 100% you know when you when you're going into a movie I mean it's hard these days with with especially with everything being online and social media to to be going into a movie and not really know what it's about or the outcome and discover a great experience that you you didn't already know kind of from the trailers but uh certainly if you've got a, a big actor in the middle you you kind of have an idea of that they're, whether they're going to live or die or you know whatever but uh yeah you know Gang, gangs of london was a blessing because we got to work with it wasn't like they were um unknown actors some of them were have been known in, in a lot of projects. You never really knew where, who, who, who was going to yeah. survive. It's been really fascinating to see kind of like the difference since moving to, because I moved to London earlier this year and to see the difference because I feel over here, you have Chopin, you have Joel, you have Michelle. Um, yeah. And it's like, they're really well known over here. And I feel like you can almost get anything financed in the UK with them attached. But then on my, in my experience, mm. just from being in this casting in the States yep. for 10 years prior to this, they would never be able to... Yeah bring in the financing for certain films or whatnot and so I'm partly like really excited Mm. to try to maybe bridge that gap of getting more people known but I do think the streamers and more of this global entities of um, getting content out there is going to hopefully make their star power rise because I do think again it's kind of what gives to these the success of these shows is you don't have the same old people like 
especially in the States, we're so sick of seeing the same people on the same CBS show or ABC show that you get to actually kind of find these cool, like gritty actors who, I mean, Chopin, I I saw him for the first time on season one and I was like, this kid is a star. Like I'm obsessed with his talent. He's so good. Yeah, he really is. He can do anything. But then you've got this, um, I don't know, to me, it's a strange phenomenon now, which I, I understand from a commercial point of view, but where you're getting asked to cast like social media personalities in films, people, influencers and people who've got loads of followers. And, you know, it's like the approach isn't let's cast the greatest actor for this role. It's this person's got 50 million followers. So if we cast them in a role, you can kind of guarantee that they just send out a a TikTok saying, uh, come and see my new movie. And then you've got a guaranteed audience, which is sort of like free publicity which they don't have to pay for to attract so and 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 yet it's sort of the wrong way around you know you obviously mm-hmm. you want to make something the best quality but sometimes some of the best films and tv don't get seen for whatever reason and they stay they remain as like a kind of cult you know something which certain people recognize as brilliant but it didn't catch on commercially and then you got commercial stuff with big stars in it it might not be any good mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. so it's yeah. Have you encountered that a lot where, because I will say for, as a casting director's perspective, I've I've been asked by studios or directors or whatnot to find somebody who has a lot of followers or things like that. And personally, I tend to push against it. I'm like, let's find, I hate that mentality of casting. It's not my way. I never want to be that way. I remember telling, and I feel bad because I know one of our friends casts a show, but I remember saying like a few years ago, I was casting the Bad Moms movies and they were talking about casting influencers to put the word out there, to get it out there. And they wanted a Kardashian and I was like the day a Kardashian gets cast in one of my movies, I will quit. Like I just can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. Yeah, probably there's a there's probably a type of movie that that's acceptable in uh, <laughs> a type of genre, but. I, you know, I don't know. There, what uh, Kim Kardashian's coming out in Ryan Murphy's series, and people are excited. <laughs> I just don't get it. I don't get it. It's it's not. It's not for everybody. It's not for me, but I'm in. I will be watching just to see how that goes because I'm very curious. I've got too much to catch up on already. That's that's already great. That I'm just so behind on. on I don't really know what a Kardashian is, so I'll not. Uh, I'll just... <laughs> Lucky man. Oh, so nice. um, do you have anything exciting coming up outside of your feature that you're working on that either you would love to work on in the future or something that you're kind of like pinpointing that's like, you know, would be exciting if you could ha- yeah. like dream up your best favorite thing to do? I have got lots of really exciting things I cannot wait to make. And I think part of the torment of being a director sometimes is you have sort of your dream projects and you have your projects that you're making and you have projects that you know you have in in your little folders and and that you're writing and it's it's trying to figure out when and how and who to make them with um and also you can only do sort of one thing at a time i mean i i have normally quite a lot at a time going on until you're actually making one you know when, when you go and like i am now actually in prep to shoot we start on the november the 6th particularly in this what's just been the most uh tumultuous year of film industry i think certainly mm-hmm. since the 1960s or something um with the strikes and everything it's just been even harder to get anything made and, and, and do the sort of jigsaw of putting together a production so yeah i i have i have a number of projects you know, in different stages of being ready to go, four of which were put on hold when the when the writer's strike and an actor strike happened. So they're suddenly coming back into fruition. TV shows, feature films, horror movies, action movies, 
sci-fi mystery tv show lots of things so it's it's sort of uh always a a juggle a plate spin you know really passionate about them all and it's and it's just how um you know it it relies on so many factors casting's a big one you know and and getting that finance and budget to equal out with the vision and and the casting and everything it is a it's a strange jigsaw putting these films together I, i i kind of always feel like i'm wanting to create something slightly impossible with a vision so my projects tend not to be that low budget that, that i don't know you'd call them maybe more mid-range which is yeah. a sort of a, a budget level that is also even more difficult at the moment because you i think <laughs> you can get away with doing a, a low budget indie for a, a million you can probably get put together and, and made pretty uh, easily at the moment and you can get it around the, these incredible film festivals or you know a kind of one to two hundred million studio superhero movie and stuff in the middle is what gets challenged i think oh, amazing Amazing. Okay, well, I know we you have a hard out, so I don't want to keep you here too long, but we always ask our guests one very important question at the end of each episode, and that is, um, if the world was ending tomorrow and you had one cocktail or drink to cheers the end of the world to, what would it be? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Uh, can I have three cocktails if it's the end of the world? Yes, you can. Sure. <laughs> My first will definitely be a white Russian inspired by the Big Lebowski um and for anyone that doesn't know white Russian is uh, equal parts of Kahlua so probably a nice sort of double shot of Kahlua um with the same amount of vodka um maybe grey goose vodka and um, poured over ice with some milk or cream as the third part so it's like three parts in the glass mixed together and it's the most mellow cocktail it'd probably be perfect for the end of the world because you can just settle into your armchair holding your loved one drinking a white russian as the world blows up um i would i've just put on a, a festival um, actually in my my local village and we just screened the godfather and had a three-course italian meal and it was kind of an immersive evening. Um, all the guests dressed up in, in 1940s period costume. And we created two cocktails for the night. One was called uh, a horse's head and the other was called a Luca Brasi. And um, the horse's head was a variation of a an old fashioned. Mm-hmm. So we had um, a bourbon whiskey with, but I did it with, partly because I'm working in Canada, I did it with maple syrup. So we had sort of maple syrup, Angostura bitters, um, ice, orange peel, and um, and whiskey. That was that was the horse's head, and then the uh, the Moscow Mule was the other Luca Brasi. So that was just more simple. That was vodka with lime and um, a little bit of soda water. Uh, no, sorry, a little bit of ginger ginger beer uh, and some mint on top. So those are my three cocktails. Love Drink it. Drink all all of those. Really. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. I love it. <laughs> Uh, sound delicious <laughs> i want to try them all <laughs> i'm gonna do a day of work and then maybe oh now i have a gin and tonic with a botanist gin and some uh, fever tree you know aromatic tonic with with a nice slice of lemon could do a cocktail show yeah <laughs> i'm gonna be our bartender the next time around we'll come to london we'll do the thing <laughs> <laughs> this is maybe a little clue to the the next movie i'm making oh skull from-, from mexico we'll have to do some research <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Corin, for joining us. We're we're so happy to talk to you and learn more about your journey and and what's to come. We'll be watching for sure. <laughs> thank you. Cheers. Cheers. And uh, yeah, it's, it, there's a great cast in this next one, so I hope that you enjoy it. And uh, 
have a great day night amazing drink thanks corin <laughs> cheers guys thank you cheers Casting is sponsored by Spotlight. Spotlight is the UK's most loved platform with 99% of the UK television roles cast through Spotlight. Over 200 breakdowns are sent out every week with casting professionals looking for over 500 roles. Projects have been cast through Spotlight include West End musicals, iconic British TV shows, the latest projects for streaming services including Apple TV, Disney+, Netflix, and much, much more. Spotlight offers brilliant membership benefits, including free events, workshops, webinars, exclusive member discounts, career advice sessions, and the latest news and advice. Starting in October, Spotlight will be opening their new spaces and will offer amazing self-tape studios right in central London. Head to spotlight.com for more information.